Good morning. So at the beginning of this year, part of what we said were our priorities for this year was this, proclaiming God's kingdom and covenant with all of us more fully living into those. Proclaiming God's kingdom and covenant with all of us more fully living into those. So this morning, we're going to look at a a piece of that puzzle, but I'm going to come at this from my particular bent, if you will. And I want to I want to preface what I'm going to say by quoting something that Jesus said in Matthew 13, uh, Matthew 13, 52. He said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And and honestly, mostly, um, hold on, Um, mostly I'm just uh, sharing that particular verse because it uh, um, gives me some justification in my mind for saying some things that I've said in the past. Some things that are old, some things that are new. I'll, I'll say some things that you've heard before. I'm going to say some things that you've never heard me say before. But I'm going to hopefully put them together in a way that's going to make a difference for us as a congregation. So let's pray. Father, we ask that right now as we, as we engage with your word, that you would speak into us by your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we, we open ourselves right now to you. We don't want to just hear some nice words, but we want to be infected and affected by you. And so we're giving you permission. Work in our hearts and our minds, even now, in this time. Amen. Amen. Let me start by saying this. Those of us who live in a Western culture, and that would be all of us here, and probably pretty much everybody who's watching online, uh, you're going to find this, the things that I'm going to share, you're going to find pretty challenging. It's going to challenge our perspective, I think, a lot. See, in our culture, we see people as, as individual and kind of detached from one another. We, we, we see ourselves as, as singular individuals. And because of that kind of thinking, we can often um, see the, the, the main relationship in the popular vernacular is my personal relationship with God. I think I had mentioned a while back that I came across a, a website that lists out a hundred different verses that talk about our personal relationship with the Lord. Um, but I found it interesting that practically all of those verses uh, are in the plural form. They use nouns like us and we and all. So it's not really a personal relationship with the Lord at all. That's a nice Western concept, but it's actually corporate. See, because of the, 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 the culture that we live in, our theology is often based on some pretty individualistic assumptions about salvation, about the church, about scripture. Now, I will say that clearly there is a, an individual aspect to our faith, and there should be, but there is much more weight in scripture to the idea of us belonging to a group, a family, a clan, a tribe, a nation, And this isn't some new, clever idea. This is basic Bible. Go back to Genesis. All the way back in Genesis 17, God told Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God wasn't wasn't just talking to Abraham, just one person. He was talking to Abraham and to his children and their children and their children and on and on all the way through. And it's clear in the Bible that that's how God sees us, not just as individuals, but as a collective whole. See, if we really want to understand the Bible, 
then we need to understand the mindset of the culture where it originated. You know, right now, um, Stephen, our son, and Amy Miller are at a three-week-long church planting conference. And I talked to Stephen a couple of days ago, and one of the things that he said that was really striking to him is learning about the different cultures and how you can say something in a particular culture, and it's not going to be understood or maybe understood completely wrongly because of that culture. And the same thing is true for the Bible. If we don't understand the culture that it was written to, that it would have been formed out of, if you will, then we're not really going to get it. So you've heard me in the past talk about um, Joshua chapter 7, where, where Israel just won that, actually God won that big victory at Jericho, and then they got whooped at, against a little city named Ai, and it was because Achan had taken some of the devoted things that he wasn't supposed to take. And, but but um, Joshua didn't know that, and Joshua is down on his face. He's crying out to God, going, God, what just happened? You promised you were going to be with us. What's, what's going on here? And God is almost like very matter-of-factly going, stand up, what are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They, they, take, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them in their own possessions. And we know that it wasn't a they, it was one person named Achan, he had done it. And yet God indicted all of them because of that. That's the Middle Eastern mindset. That's the mindset of the Bible that we're not just a bunch of individuals, but we are a collective whole. We can see that same thing. I shared this, I think, at the, uh, the Jesus Reigns the last time, um, Joshua chapter 22. The, the, the Israelites had gone into the promised land, had basically taken as much of it as they were going to at that point in time, and they were now going to settle into the, the areas that God had given to them. And so two and a half tribes were on the other side of the Jordan, if you remember this. The other nine and a half were on the the other side. Um, But the two and a half tribes, when they got back there, started into their homes and that kind of stuff, they built an altar. And these other guys thought, they just went apostate, we're going to go in there, we're going to wipe them out. But fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and they sent a delegation to talk to them first. And they found out, no, no, this isn't, this isn't a bad thing. We're, we set this up as a witness to show our children and our children after them that we're really with you guys. We might be on the other side of the river, but we're all one big family. And it was during that whole interchange that somebody uh, from the delegation made an interesting statement in Joshua twenty two eighteen said, if you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. In other words, if, if you few guys over here do something wrong, God's going to be upset with all of us. It's that Middle Eastern mindset that we don't have in our culture, but we need to understand in order to really get scripture. I recently came across a uh, another illustration, I mean, you see this over and over, but there's some major points in the Bible where it really emphasizes this. Happen to be reading the, the, the book of Daniel. If you have a Bible, you might want to go to Daniel chapter 9. It's toward the end of the book of Daniel. And uh, at this point, Daniel has been in Babylon for decades, all right? Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, Daniel is praying and he says this. Then I turned my face to the Lord, to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, 
we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Skip down to verse nine, just for the sake of time. To the Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Skip down to the end of verse 11. We have sinned against him. Skip down to the end of verse 14. We have not obeyed his voice. End of verse 15. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Now, understand this, that when Daniel prays this, he has been, according to every Uh, commentary that I looked at. He has been in Babylon for 66 years. Now, we don't know for sure exactly how old Daniel was when he was taken into captivity, but most commentators put it somewhere in the range of 11 to 12 to 16 to 17. So somewhere in that five to six year span is when he was captured, taken into captivity. So do the math. At this point, when he prays this prayer in Daniel 9, he is somewhere around 80 years old. He has now served in Babylon under three different kings and everything that we see in the book of Daniel indicates that he is the righteous person of his generation. He is the Moses of his time. He is the Abraham of his day. And he has spent basically his entire life serving foreign kings because those who came before him did what they knew they weren't supposed to do. And here is Daniel praying, and he is taking the blame upon himself along with those other people. It's that Middle Eastern mindset that says we're all in this together. It's a collective mentality that's very different than how we think in the West. And I think, I think we are, honestly, I think we're daily pushing even further away from that mindset in our culture. I, I recently read an article about some folks who had done some deep research into popular songs from the 1980-something until today, all right? And one of the, for me, one of the big takeaways was that the songs in our culture, and I'm talking about, I'm not talking about Christian songs, I'm talking about secular songs, all right? And this was a secular article. So that one one of the big things that they found was that the songs today are much more me focused than they were 30 some years ago. Wow. And that's, that's just becoming more, and it's just a part of our culture. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a byproduct. Everything is about me and my needs and my wants, and that mindset permeates every area of our culture, but that mindset is not biblical. It's a far cry from the people who, to whom the Bible was originally written. So when we read Scripture, we can't overlay our uh, way of thinking onto scripture and expect to fully understand it. It's not going to work. I mean, think about it. Do you, remember, do you remember when Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them to pray? And he said, pray along these lines, our father, he didn't say my father, he said, our father, give us this day, forgive us as we forgive, lead us, deliver us. It's just, that was part of the culture. It was part of the understanding. It's not just me. It's all of us together. And so many of the 
the New Testament references that talk about the body of Christ. Just two that really strike me, Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, individually members of one another. I mean, I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but obviously there is some kind of connectedness there. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we who are many are one body. Not just a bunch of individuals, but together, one body. We see this concept over and over. God sees us as a collective. So we are one in God's sight, all right? Here's the dilemma. Jesus prayed that we would be one. Wait, so if we already are one, why would he pray that? So let's take a step back and look at this from a little different angle for a minute. Maybe this will help. We know that according to scripture, that you and I as Christians, we have been made holy and righteous. We are new creatures in him. We are children of the king. We have become the righteousness of God in Christ, right? We are his workmanship. We are are his ambassadors, right? All of those things are true. But even though all of those are true, those are not always evidenced in our lives all the time, right? There are times that perhaps we don't act like a king's kid. There are times that we don't appear to be holy and righteous. Is it just me? There are times that we may not look like an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You with me? So think about it, and we've talked about this before. God gave the Old Testament Israelites the promised land, but they still had to fight for it. Even though God had given it to them, they didn't just get to walk in and say, hey, we're here, all you guys lay down your weapons. No, there were skirmishes, there were battles, um, there were, uh, people got hurt, people died. And yet that land was theirs before they ever set foot in it because of the promise of God. You with me? That's what we need to do in our individual lives. We have been given promises that we are all of those things that I mentioned earlier, but we need to take the ground. Now, let me be quick to add that we only do that by his power. It's only in his strength that we're able to do that. We we don't but we don't sit back and wait for something magical to happen. We actually have to put forth effort, but the effort that we're putting forth is done in his strength. So that's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us together collectively. We are one. That's how God sees us. It's part of the reason that Jesus died, but we need to contend for it. We need to live into it, if you will. Now there's lots of, pieces in that puzzle of exactly what that looks like. But I think one of the, for us, one of the most practical ones is that we need to live out all of the one another's of the Bible. Prefer one another, honor one another, submit to one another, forgive one another, be patient with one another, love one another. Let, let me try this from a little different angle and see if this might help. If you could choose one group of people from any era of history who should be able to get along with one another, 
What group would you choose? And I'm not going to throw this open right now because you might come up with some really good ideas and it might take a while to get back to where we need to be. So I'm just going to tell you that one really good option from my perspective would be ancient Christian monks. After all, they had renounced worldliness, had come together with other people that had done the same, and along with that, they spent a lot of their time in silence and alone. I mean, what a great atmosphere for getting along with one another, right? I mean, it just makes sense. They should be able to do that. man named William Harmless, what a great name. Wouldn't you like to have the name Harmless? man named William Harmless wrote a book entitled Desert Christians, and he said this, Modern readers often imagine that for monks, sexuality posed the greatest struggle, but ancient sources indicated otherwise. Anger, not sex, figured more prominently. The challenge was human relations. See, when we hang out with people who are different from us, different in any way, there are going to be times that uh, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be disagreements. It's just going to happen. And that's when we get to practice those one another's. And it's in those interactions that God grows us up, if you will. And you guys know what I'm talking about. So if that's true, then without those interactions, then our growth is going to be stunted. Are you following me? So think about it. I think that when Jesus prayed for us to be one, that he was praying that we would live into what we already had and what he was, was going to make even more sure through his death and resurrection. Think about the words that he prayed. Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. What a staggering idea that is. When the world sees us as one, then they're going to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father. You know, some time ago, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and I think practically every time I talk with my friend Laurie Mellinger, I am challenged at some level of my theology. And as we, we talked about this whole idea that, that uh, Jesus prayed that we would be one so that the world would believe that he would, Jesus was sent by the Father, and she made a statement that I probably missed the next five minutes of what she said because I was thinking about that. And what, she said, we are magnetic. What a great way to phrase it. We're magnetic. See, think about it. We, you and I, were created, all people, were created in the image of God. And God, from the very beginning, is relational. I mean, think about it. The eternal God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, relationship going on for eternity. And then he creates us. And another dimension of, of relationship is there, right? And so that's part of God's character. It's part of who he is, his relationship. And if we're created in his image, then that's part of us. So every person who has ever been created has some level of, some dimension of that relationship aspect, the desire for that on the inside. Now, I know sin has tainted that. And so we're not all on the same level, the same page, all right? But there's something about that inside of us. So when you and I, as Christians, we're actually living out that relationship with God and with one another, people on the outside look at that and they're attracted to it. We are magnetic, if you will. People are compelled by that because it's something that they were designed for and they don't have. The great 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer said that Christian unity is the final apologetic to the world. 
And some of you have heard me talk about this before. The word apologetic comes from the Greek word apologia. And it refers to a defense or an answer given in response to a charge. So, so think of an ancient courtroom scene where an accusation is made and the accused is refuting the charge. That's the idea. In the Bible, that word is nearly always used in the idea of a defense of the faith. The second part of the word apologetic uh, comes from the same word as logic. So a Christian apologetic um, makes a case that our, our faith is, is true, is accurate, is logical. So when Francis Schaeffer said that Christian unity is the final apologetic of the church, he's saying that when all of the words have been spoken, that us demonstrating, living out true biblical unity is the last and best defense that we have to show that what we believe really is true. And he's right. That's what Jesus was clearly praying when he prayed in John 17. See, the problem is that all too often we in the church depict a different thing to the world. They don't see that. You're familiar with, the, with, with caricatures, you know, those little drawings. Um, can I get to that next slide? Barb and I, when we were in high school, we were in a, a music drama group and our art teacher, sorry dear, our art teacher in high school, you've heard me talk about uh, Al Markworth in the past, he had a big influence in my life. Al would sit in art class after he gave us an assignment, he'd do caricatures of all the students in the class. Well, this was the group that Barb and I were in. Do you know which ones are us? Yeah, those two middle ones. That, okay, so um, caricatures. But where are caricatures mostly used today? You see them in political cartoons, right? People, um, somebody will draw a person and make them look ridiculous with the idea that they are ridiculous. I used an older one just to, um, so it didn't feel too close to home right now. Um, but see, I think that often we in the church, you can get rid of that, um, we in the church kind of live in a caricaturish way that sends the wrong message to the world. We act like we're not really one. Several years ago, I, I read a book uh, by a man named Kokichi Kurosaki. And he had been a, a missionary in Japan not long after World War II. And during that time frame, there were a lot of missionaries that had reached out to the, the Japanese people with the gospel. It was this wide open field ready for harvest at that point because they were, they were wondering what was going on. But the, Kurosaki in the book, he said that, that the Japanese people were confused by all of these different Christian groups and denominations that were coming in, all saying they were Christian, but none of them working together, and some of them even kind of fighting against one another. That was totally baffling to the Japanese people. And so the gospel never really took hold in Japan because the people of Japan didn't believe that Jesus was sent by the Father because the people weren't one. Are you with me? I think that in part, it has to do with how we think about and see each other in the body. Let me give you a little side lesson here that connects with what we're talking about. When you read the Bible, it is far less a textbook that many people would like it to be See, many theologians today give the impression that the Bible is like this theological line-by-line -line treatise. And that's just not true. 
And so much of scripture, it actually reads like a novel. And I'm not saying it's not true, but it's, it's these stories. And in part, those stories are there to paint pictures to give us a different understanding of God and his kingdom. So, for example, we're not just God's people. We're the sheep of his pasture and all that that entails. It's this image that we get that changes how we think about that situation. God isn't just the the sovereign creator on his throne somewhere out there. He's the compassionate one that pursues wayward sons and daughters like we saw in the book of Jonah that we just studied. See, we get these images, these pictures that change how we think and how we view God and his kingdom. And so I think one of those that we need to understand is that we are indeed the body of Christ and that image should alter how we think and how we think about and how we see the church. If you think that the the church should only be people who are just like you, you're missing the body image. I've encountered churches as I've traveled who are trying to evangelize and gather together only 20-somethings. To me, that's like, okay, all the little fingers over here. That's not a body. My friend Bob Kilpatrick, along with his son Joel, they wrote a tremendous book. It's entitled The Art of Being You. In it, they said this, accepting that each of us is limited by design gives us the freedom to enjoy people, who people are rather than wishing they were different. We need each other just as God made us to be. To demand that people be something other than themselves is as futile as putting on a country album and expecting to hear a Mozart piano concerto. They're right. And, and, and we need each other precisely because we're different, like different parts of the body. We can't fully mature if our interactions are only with people who are just like us. If you were born in, I don't know, say 1970 or earlier, you might recall what Sports Illustrated referred to as the top sports moment of the 20th century. It was during the 1980 Winter Olympics. The Soviet Union hockey team had won the gold medal in the five of the last six Olympic Games. They were all professional players who had played together for years. The U.S. team, on the other hand, was almost totally made up of college players who had never played together. And yet, amazingly, the U.S. team won. Became known as the Miracle on Ice. There's a movie about it, in case you haven't ever seen it. Pretty good. But what I find interesting in the story is that each player was handpicked by the coach, not because they were just like the others, but precisely because they weren't. They were different. They had different roles to play. Each one had a specific role. And they were were put together in smaller groups with people who they would complement their gifts and abilities. They would be able to work together. They had what the others needed, if you will. And because of that, They upended this incredible team nobody expected would happen. 
1 Corinthians 12, Paul is talking about, you know, he's giving that amazing body analogy in 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 18, it says, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Each one as he chose. Kind of reminds me of those Olympic hockey players. Each one handpicked, each one intentionally different to play a specific role that others can't play. And in the body of Christ, each one of us using his or her gifts or abilities to augment the others. That's how any body works, right? Have you, ever, have you ever broken your thumb or seen somebody who did? Watch them trying to open a jar or even pick up a piece of paper. It's really difficult because you need that opposed. You know, these four guys are all pretty much similar. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar. This guy is really different and he's, nece- he's necessary. Are you with me? We need those parts that are different that that maybe we don't even understand. So as we see ourselves, I mean really see ourselves as the body of Christ, each part doing what it's supposed to do, it changes how how we see and how we interact with each other. You know, modern science actually, um, they're hard pressed to tell you why certain parts of our body are actually there. But God designed the body. And there might be some of you who look at other parts of the body of Christ and go, why are they even? But you know what? It's not our call. God placed each part as he chose. There's a reason that they're there. All right, so beyond the the body picture that we get in Scripture, there's another picture that I want us to kind of Uh, hone in on for a moment or two here, and that's that we are the bride of Christ, that we are the bride of Christ. I had shared it with our our home group recently. Suppose that I go to my friend Walter and I invite him uh, to spend the day with Barb and we. We're going to go to a a nice state park. The weather's going to be beautiful. We're going to go, I don't know, we're going to go boating. We're going to go hiking. We're uh, going to have a picnic lunch along Maybe later that evening, we'll actually have our grill. We'll grill some steaks and everything to go with it. A couple of great meals there. Maybe later we'll do a campfire, toast some marshmallows, make some s'mores, you know, all that kind of stuff. Just a tremendous day. But as I'm inviting Walter, I say, but Walter, don't bring your wife. She's just weird. I don't don't even know why you married her. She's got to be one of the strangest people I've ever met. All right, none, none of us would probably ever do something like that, Right? But I think we do that same thing to the Lord. Lord, I love you, but your bride, she's just, hello? Interesting scene in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And then there's this awesome description of the church. And you have to, you have to study it out to really get the, the full weight of it. But See, I think when we really see the church, I'm talking big C church, even little C church, us, when we see the church not as, I don't know, some sleazeball that just happened in off the street, but as the glorious bride of Christ, the one for whom he laid down his life, the perfect holy, spotless, set-apart one that he's coming back for. When we see that picture, it has to affect how we interact with one another. 
1 John 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we have gone from being dead to alive. We know that we have been born again. We know that we have become alive in Christ. How? Because we love the brothers. Does that verse really say what I think it says? One of the ways of gauging our relationship with the Father, with God, is looking at our relationship with one another. You've heard me say before, the horizontal is going to affect the vertical. 1 John 4.20, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I'm going I'm to give you a different spin on that verse just to kind of shake you up a little bit. If you're not loving the bride of Christ, you can't love Christ himself. That's just a rewording of what John said right there. It's not anything different. Let me try going down a, a different path here just for a moment. We have a spiritual enemy. I think we're all in agreement on that. If you were that enemy, what strategy would you use to keep Christians from growing up? And I'm guessing we can get lots of different answers. I've asked that in public settings before. And the most common answer I get is I would, I would want to keep tempting them with things that I know they're vulnerable to. And that's a great answer. But if I ask that same question, what strategy would you use to keep Christians from growing up? In the context of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, I'll get a different answer. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? Paul is saying they are infants. They are babies. They have not grown up because there is strife and jealousy. Different translations use the word in place of strife, bickering or quarreling. So when we have that bickering, we have that quarreling, we have that jealousy, we're infants. So if I was the enemy and I wanted to keep people from growing up, I would keep them at one another's throats. It would perpetuate their infancy, if I can say it that way. Think about it. A little while ago, I said that if we don't have interactions with those that are different from us, that our growth is going to be stunted. If we don't learn to deal with others without jealousy, without strife, without that bickering, without that quarreling, then we're going to stay as babies. That's what that verse is telling us. All right, so where does all this leave us? Two things. First, we need to see ourselves more and more as the body of Christ. Not just a bunch of individuals, but collectively together as his body, working together, caring for one another, the body of Christ. And second, we need to recognize the ramifications of what that means. If our lives are indeed somehow intertwined with one another, if we're truly members of one another, we read that earlier, then what we do will affect others. So you might think that what you do on your own, apart from others, in private, is just you. 
But according to scripture, that's just not true. We are so connected together that the things that happen in us are going to affect the rest of the body. All right, so here's the real bottom line. When we recognize in this, when we recognize truth, in this case, that we are indeed one, not separate entities, and what we do will affect the rest, then we need to let God's truth change us, to change our thinking and, ultimately, and, and, and reshape and reform our thinking and, and ultimately to change our lives, to reshape and reform our lives. That His Word would so permeate us from a right perspective that it would cause change within us. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to not just be hearers of your word, but be doers. And so we're asking today, as we have encountered the truth of your word, that that truth would grip us in a new and fresh way and would so permeate our, our thinking that it would, would play out in our actions. Lord, that, that we would see one another as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, and that we would interact with each other on that basis. Lord, that we would live out those one another's of Scripture and that we would truly grow up into you the way that you desire. May we, in your mercy, be one. Amen.